0: Good day. You are tuned into Radio Alhara. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. This is my monthly artist interview uh, contribution to this station in Palestine, uh, Radio Al-Hara. I uh, speak with an artist each month. Um, it is Friday, the 4th of March. And on the broadcast today, I'm going to be sharing an interview that I did with singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. Uh, you might know uh, Bruce Coburn from songs like Lovers in a Dangerous Time. Uh, Also, his other song uh, that really is a focus of this interview, which is If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Bruce Coburn has been a steadfast presence in folk and singer-songwriter networks uh, within North America for many years, um, decades. And um, I've always appreciated his work, and particularly... Uh, Thought about his song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, many times uh, in the context of thinking about what it means to resist injustice. It's really a song that developed within the context of a visit that Coburn took with some activists from Toronto to a frontline community on the border of Mexico and Guatemala. In the context of the Cold War, when the US administration was arming the right wing paramilitaries in Guatemala, who were eventually found guilty of carrying out genocidal actions against the Mayan indigenous communities. Uh, Coburn visited and witnessed the situation, took in stories and also saw the military hardware of the Guatemalan army just on the border, particularly helicopter flybys, uh, some which attacked the refugee camps just inside of the border of Mexico. The song came out of that context um, And I thought it would be really important to talk to Bruce Coburn about that song uh, for Radio Hara in uh, Palestine. Because I think often when we discuss the frameworks of violence and frameworks of understanding anti-colonial struggles, uh, struggles against injustice... You know, in the context of Guatemala, of course, uh, we can really think about the fact that the U.S. Army and military industrial complex backed the right-wing government of Guatemala in the context of the Cold War. And there was many groups, armed groups, opposing that right-wing government um, that was involved through paramilitaries in carrying out massacres against indigenous communities. And I think Coburn Song asked the question, if I had a rocket launcher, what would you do? Um, and, you know, when we think about Palestine and the armed resistance to Israeli injustice and occupation, um, that framework of understanding, of thinking about the ways that uh, a context of injustice can really inspire and push people to act um, you know, in very uh, extreme circumstances of colonial manifestations of violence to take take up arms. And this is, you know, coming from a singer-songwriter who's beloved in, you know, Canada, who wrote this song. So I wanted to have a conversation with him about it for Radio Hara in Palestine. So here's my conversation with Bruce Coburn.
1: People in churches saying, look, saying the same thing I'm saying, that we got to get along, we got to figure this out. But, but, uh, but they're up against, we are all up against this, this other phenomenon, which, uh, you know, as I, I tend to define things in spiritual terms a lot for myself, and uh, to me, when I, the, the first glimpse I had of Donald Trump, when I realized, actually not of him, but of his supporters, when I realized like six months before he, the election that he was going to win it. That that I I thought this is satanic. This is like this is so wrong. This guy is the, the worst possible uh, presence in in that kind of position. And um, he didn't let me down. <laughs> but uh, um, but that the what he set loose is like uh, you know is all this fractiousness. And 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 um, I mean it was already there, but. In earlier eras, it's not just Trump, it's the internet it's, it, it, it's, and the way people use it. Uh, it's not the internet either. It's just it is how it gets used. And uh, the, uh, all of this stuff kind of conspiring, you know, the, 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 the panic that no one really talks about, about, the, about climate change, they either deny it in, in a panic or they embrace it in a panic. But, but none of them acknowledge the panic part. And so, you know, we've got that going. We've got the, the, the threat to global democracy. It's not just in the U.S. and Canada, but it's, but it's pretty global. We've, you know, there's all these things, and, and all of those things um, are conspiring to, to take us down, in effect. So, you know, it has to be resisted. And the only way I can see... To resist it is with uh, whatever I'm not. I don't know how you translate this into, you know, actual with day to day terms, but is with love. You got to you you've got to put that out there and spread it around as much as you can, and and see where you can put take it because you know you. I mean, obviously, voting counts, and uh, the uh, the mechanics of politics count hugely, but. They are mechanics, and they're not the spirit of the thing. And 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 what has to be addressed is that that spirit of darkness that is that's settling over everything. Um, it, you could see it in psychological terms. It's, it, and I've said this, you know, in other contexts earlier on. But it's it seems to me it has seemed to me for a couple of decades now that there's a war within humanity, within the human, the collective psyche, kind of between. Uh, between Thanatos, the desire to be dead, and the urge to live, and, and uh, that's that we often express as love, and and those things are are uh, they can coexist and do in in a, in a balanced person, uh, but when you when it becomes a collector thing, it becomes more easy easier to tip the balance than in one way or the other. Well. In, in the wrong way I guess it's not it's not easy to tip it in the right way for some reason but uh, um, so the, the earth is self-destruct like we we've got that and we have to fight that in ourselves and and, and, and like and as a collective
0: um, entity there's a lot of um, love that you put into your work in terms of your work as a musician and the amount of hours that you spend on on your craft and Um, the preparations that you're working on to share that craft publicly. Um, I would imagine there's a lot of dedication, both for yourself, but also to continue to share your work uh, in the public space. Um, How does love factor into that individual drive to persistently um, hone your craft to create and to like take the time Because things like your work don't happen quickly, right? And I think often people have this conception that, you know, a song comes into somebody's mind, and sometimes it does, or a a lyric. But there's a whole context and process that is so invisibilized by the Western narrative of, like, you know, an artist just coming out of nowhere. Um, But the love of the craft, if you could talk about that.
1: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, for me, it was a long, slow, slow, development, I mean, it, some people have an easier time of it than I did. I think of, of, of understanding that aspect of things. I, I mean, I, when I was a teenager, I wanted to play guitar. I didn't really want to do anything else. I mean, I liked reading and I liked hanging out and whatever else, but, but I mean, you know, there were, I I've never, never owned up to having an ambition, uh, but I wanted to spend time with the guitar and did. And uh, you know, okay, so when it comes time to go to college, my parents are going, "You got to go to college. And I'm going I don't want to go to college. I just want to go and play music. And you know you got to go to college. Okay, well, how about music school? Okay, you can go to music school. So I went to music school. Uh, and I dropped out after a while because I realized that the direction I was that I had thought I wanted to study in uh, was not a direction which was which was composing music for large jazz ensembles or whatever. Uh, I didn't I, you know, I wasn't well suited to that, and and it wasn't really in my heart when I when I started digging into it. I didn't know what was there, so I so I dropped out, started joined a band, and and that I, I kind of wandered around for a half a decade, in and out of different bands, learning to write songs without really thinking of it as a learning process. Just writing for the bands I was in, but over the over that second half of the 60s it was like uh okay you know this is what you're doing and and i started realizing that i could do it for one thing and that uh and that i really liked doing it and that i mean i like the process of sitting writing a song uh of of coming up with words and then finding music for those words and and uh and I, I haven't lost my love for that. I it's it's my favorite thing to do. It doesn't happen all that often, or at least well, it happens often enough. But it not 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 with the frequency that would be more satisfying. But because there's large gaps, you know, where I don't write anything and don't have any ideas, and then then some stuff will come and and, and you know. So, um, but that's been the pattern for you know the last fifty years or plus. And, and, it's, and it comes over the years. What I learned was, at first, I learned that I actually do love it. You know, I mean, I couldn't define love to myself. Or, because I grew up in a family that never used the word. So, you know, it's just it's like, what does that mean? I don't know what it means. But uh, over, over the years, I discovered what it meant. And one of the things, the first clue was I discovered I actually love my audience. Once, I had, once, I, once somebody pointed out to me that I should pretend I did, uh, it it's like, what? Oh, you mean you're supposed to love these people? But I thought I was just scared of them, you know. But I still got up and did it because I wanted to play the songs. But but then it, once I once I started pretending I loved them, I discovered that I actually did. <laughs> and, and, it, and that you get, get this flow back and forth. And so, you know, that's part of the picture too. I mean, I'm, when I write these songs, I'm writing them for, uh, in the expectation that people I love are going to hear them.
0: Right on. Respect, respect. Um, Well, one song that I love is um, If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Um, I've listened to that song countless times, especially as uh, an activist. I really appreciated the context within which it was written, um, and it's gotten quite a lot of shares recently Um, but within this song I'd love to hear a bit about it but within the song one of the lyrics is I want to raise every voice at least I've got to try every time I think about it it, water rises to my eyes can you talk a bit about like how you came to share that those words Um, I'd like to talk a bit about the specific context of the song but I know that you're pointing to a broader idea here um, about collectively raising voice (laughs)
1: I've talked about this song a lot, as you probably know. So, you know, uh, some of what I'm about to say may sound a little rehearsed. But basically, the song was a product of some days spent in two refugee camps in the south of Mexico in Chiapas, very close to the Guatemalan border, in a period when there was a, a ferocious war of repression going on in the Guatemalan highlands against, primarily against the native people. Uh, who inhabit those those mountains they are the Mayan people uh, they live in with in varying degrees of sort of traditional style but the the um, there was a revolution because of decades of abuse by by and racism by the people who control the country against those people uh, and the, the abuse would take the form of, uh, you know, if somebody showed up wearing glasses, it might mean they could read and therefore they were a threat to the powers that be and they would be exterminated. And, uh, uh, you know, and not usually in, in, in a fairly brutal way. And then they started doing this to whole villages. Uh, when, as, as the rebellion started, after decades of this, people got fed up and you got a leftist revolution that went out and, and became an army and fought the government. Okay, well, you know, but the, these people living in the villages, the, the, the government's philosophy was, which they learned to some, some degree from the United States, um, was because they employed a tactic that, uh, that was used in, in Vietnam with about the same degree of success as it was in Guatemala, which is not much, uh, of creating strategic hamlets. So they forced people to move off their traditional land and into areas that could be easily controlled and monitored, and um, people didn't want to move. In the, the Mayan culture, they bury their name; they bury their umbilical cord where they're born, and they don't want to leave that spot. That's part of, the, of their understanding of how the cosmos works. And uh, so, among other things, that that was an impediment. Uh, so the military responded to that kind of resistance by going in and exterminating villages, uh, you know, the, the, the classic, the same old, it's, I mean, the, the mundane, the banality of this is, is as disturbing as, as the horror of it in a way. Be, be, but it's the same old stuff. The, the people get herded into the church. They set the church on fire and then shoot anybody who tries to run out. And, and so all these people are burned up in the church. Or they, they're, you know, they grab all the babies and throw them down the well. Or, you know, I mean, it's just is hideous stuff and much worse than what I've just described. And I'm hearing stories from these refugees about these things that they've witnessed and experienced and fled from. And uh, at the same time, the, we're sitting there in the jungle, they have nothing. In one of the two camps, they were, they were living on a ration of, there was like 3,000 people in that camp living on a ration of three tortillas a day. That's all they had. And no expectation of getting anything else because the Mexican government wasn't supporting them, That wouldn't let the UN in. And um, the, the, the church was doing the archbishop of, of uh, San Cristóbal. Oh, I don't know what he's the archbishop of, but yeah, he was the archbishop that was based in San Cristóbal, Las Casas, down in Chiapas, And he was providing whatever support he could kind of clandestinely do because he had to be careful. Didn't didn't want for some reason. I don't know why. um, They didn't want to acknowledge that there was a refugee issue. They had a hundred thousand refugees, but they didn't want to own up to it. So um, they didn't want anybody to go in there. We had to sneak into these camps, which wasn't very hard to do, but, but it had to be clandestine. And, uh, the, um, and the, so, the, you know, the church was trying to support this stuff, but it was minimal. But here they are in, the, in this, these deprived conditions, having fled this horrible stuff that they'd fled. And in, in the one camp that was quite close to the border, you, did you hear the sound? of Like the, in the morning, the helicopter goes by. You don't see it, but it's, it's patrolling the border. A couple hours later, it comes back the other way. Then it goes, You know, this happens all day. And uh, maybe they're different helicopters, maybe it's the same one. But the week before I was there, uh, they had flown up over the camps and strafed them from the air. And uh, this is on Mexican territory, and probably one, one of the reasons the Mexican government was hesitant to make a big deal out of this was they didn't want a confrontation with Guatemala for whatever reason. I mean, they could have easily stomped them because there's way more Mexicans than there are Guatemalans, but but whatever. This was going on. So I hear hearing and I'm thinking this is I, I just started feeling a sense of outrage out of which came the song. When so I got out of the after we left the camps we were sitting in this little town in a hotel and and I started uh I, I I went out and I bought a bottle of something, I don't remember what, and, and uh, whiskey, I think, and, and I'm sitting there drinking whiskey and in tears, actually, because of all this, and started writing the song. And I thought, you know, I, I wrote it right from the gut, from the heart, it is, it's how I felt. After I wrote it, I, I thought, I can't sing this for anybody. But, you know, I, mean, I, I don't want to encourage people to go kill Guatemalan soldiers. But and that's how people will hear it. so I didn't I, I almost didn't record it because of that because I didn't want it to be misunderstood and I, I bored a lot of audiences <laughs> uh, the first couple of years I was touring with that song because I would launch into a long speech similar to what you've just heard about the origins of it and you know this it was too much talk for a, for a concert but um, people mostly put up with it but but. Uh, but I really didn't want it to be misunderstood. People misunderstand things anyway. I had a guy come up, I've told this story too, but a guy came up to me on the street in Toronto when the the video of Rocket Launcher was on Much Music a lot. Um, And uh, he said, oh, I like that Rocket Launcher song. He said, and I've seen the video, man. He said, things must be terrible there in Africa. Okay, you know, I didn't bother correcting him, It was like, not going there (laughs) i've got other things to do with my time but but you know i mean the guy was being nice he was and and he was genuinely touched by the song but he wasn't paying attention and he had no knowledge of the context and so what he heard in it what he liked about it was the expression of outrage and and that that unfettered i guess it strikes people this way an unfettered kind of expression of of that in, inter, internal rage that we seem to be born with, uh, that we spend large parts of our uh, intentional life kind of subduing, and uh, and that um, you know that's I think why the song was so popular. I was taught to care about what happens to my fellow human beings, um, but I didn't take it as far as the direct. Political involvement un- until the mid seventies, when I started meeting Aboriginal people and uh, and uh, coming to understand what kind of lives had been inflicted on them and um, on my peers, basically the people the same age, other singer songwriters, Shingus, Tom Jackson. I mean, these I mean I met these guys out west, and I think, holy jeez, like my life wasn't anything like that. So. You know, and why is that? So you know, you look at these things. And um, that, that was the start of it. And then Central America kind of pushed it further.
0: You mentioned your um, collaboration with Indigenous artists, uh, both on the album artwork. Um, uh, I know that you collaborated with some Indigenous artists on the cover uh, art for um, some of your albums and also for the imagery. Um, and the relationships you talked about. Um, why uh, was this important for you? And how is it related also to the experiences that you had in Central America?
1: Central America particularly was related in the context of Guatemala and the other countries in the region too, but primarily Guatemala, the, the, the main victims, the, the, mo- the, the largest uh, proportion of victims of that war were indigenous people. Uh, and, of course, that's a continuation in what is on our unfortunately traditional terms of, of what used to be done here, and the end result was similar, that you end up with a, an apartheid system, that, or, or the model, the actual model for apartheid, uh, and the, a failure to understand that, that Indigenous people were actually human beings. And that they should be treated, you know, the, the, the notion that they should be treated in some interim, some, some way between kind of uh, farm animals and people. They were somewhere in between there. And so, um, you know, we look at that and it's disgusting to think that anybody thought that way, but it was the prevailing attitude among, uh, you know, among European settlers so and it's still i mean in the 70s when i first started traveling out west it was real easy to find that attitude among the 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 white population of you know saskatchewan and alberta well alberta i mean it didn't just extend to native people i mean at the turn of the 20th century I, i read a newspaper article from the early 1900s from edmonton um which made a distinction between white people and Ukrainians. You know, it was like, because there were all these Ukrainian immigrants coming in and, and, and at the behest of the Canadian government, but you know, in, Al, in the Alberta context, they weren't considered white people. What the what the fuck is that? Like, uh, you know, I mean, but this is what we grew out of, okay? And thank God we've grown out of it for the most part. Uh, everybody benefits, but it's, there's, there's still, Room to, to keep that process going.
0: That was a conversation with Bruce Coburn, singer songwriter. Um, I would encourage you to visit and learn more about his work. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. This is my monthly artist interview series on Radio Hara. Once a month, I feature a 30 minute interview uh, here on the station, and uh, it's my pleasure to do so. So I'll be back in April with another uh, interview. And in the meantime, free Palestine, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Second time today, everybody scatters and hopes it goes away. How many kids they've murdered?